Happy 2021. On tonight's show, we're answering your questions live. The Cozy Robot Show. Well, hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show. And for those of you who are watching instead of listening, you are probably noticing something immediately, and that is all my hair is gone. <laughs> In uh, this age of social distancing and isolating and being an at-risk person, uh, I've been cutting my own hair and, frankly, doing a pretty good job. I've been really proud of myself. And today, I got mixed up about which guard was on my clippers and accidentally just cut a nice path right in the front of my hair. And the only way I knew how to fix it was to just buzz it all off. So this is not a bold, new fashion choice. This is... This is pandemic living. So <laughs> uh, good news is I don't have that much hair. It should come back in just a few weeks. So I just wanted to start there. I was going to make a joke about how I just think Grace Vaughn, our social media manager, is so cool that I just want to be like her. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I have way less hair to start with. So anyway, tonight's a really special show. Uh in that it's all question and answer, you know, um, it's been a wild ride to start this program. You know, uh, I used to host a program called Ask Science Mike, which was a really fun show, had a really stable audience, thousands of people listening every week. And um, it didn't really, we didn't really lose listeners. We gained listeners kind of slowly, seasonally, or if I did something in the media, uh, but, you know, what, what I noticed was even though the audience of that program was growing slowly over time, um, the number of questions that came into the program constantly declined. To, we got to the point where we were really struggling to get enough questions for the show every week. And I'd look and I'd say, is anybody listening? Well, yeah, they're listening. They're just not sending in questions. And so I was already working with um, Victory and Tanner and some other folks to try to launch a new program in addition to Science Mike that was video-driven based on feedback we've gotten from some of the people who read my books but don't uh, listen to the podcast. And younger people who follow me on social media are just like, I'm not into podcasts, but have you considered social video? And, uh, you know, we had big, big aspirations for what the Cozy Robot Show was going to be. And then we hit a pandemic and we've had to do everything with production out of my home. But one piece of feedback we've gotten from longtime Ask Science Mike listeners is they miss the Q&A format. And I do too. I really like that kind of show. So I wanted to start tonight by saying we'd love to do more question and answer format editions uh, of the Cozy Robot Show. We'd love to do questions every week. Um, you know, we'd love to uh, have many episodes that are questions only, but for that to happen, We've got to get your questions coming into the program. So if you like tonight's format, make sure you just go to CozyRobots.com slash AskMike and send in a question anytime you're curious about anything or if you have an idea of what you'd like us to talk about. We want this show to be centered on what you're interested in, what you're curious about, and the places that empathetic skepticism takes you. Now, tonight, we not only have a lot of questions already that came in from social media, thanks for, to everyone on Instagram and Twitter who sent in questions, but I'm also going to be taking questions live. So no matter where you are watching, if it's Facebook, if it's Twitch, if it's YouTube, if it's 
Twitter. I think we're live on Twitter too. Any of those, you can send in a question right in the comments. And our team is looking at that and we'll put it on my screen and we'll answer that as the program proceeds. So that's going to be how we're going to handle uh, tonight's program. And then if you hear a question that you enjoy and you'd like to share with someone, just remember we cut the show into little segments. We put those up on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook throughout the week to make it easier to share. Just kind of bite-size snippets. So that's what we're going to do tonight. First show of 2021. What a wild year this could be. I don't know about you, but I was glad to see 2020 kind of move on. The year of the virus was not fun. Uh, but here in 2021, we are hoping to see the year of the vaccine and some return to functioning human society. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot going on as we do that. So remember, you can drop a question anytime you'd like in the chat. We'll look at it and we'll, you know, consider it answering it, answering it right on the program, depending on how many questions we get. We might get more questions than we can answer. We'll see. Anyway, so the first question we got was from... Uh, M-I-C-I-E, at M-I-C-I-E on Instagram, who said, is there any science behind shame slash regret? And I really want to key in right as I read that question on the notion of shame slash regret, because shame and regret, I guess they do feel very similar. They're both kind of warm, sad feelings. You know, because when we experience shame, we experience regret, uh, it, it's not cold like uh, fear. It's more warm like sadness. There are, are physiological reasons for that. Uh, there's lots of science behind both of those feelings. Uh, those, those feelings are highly associated with social mammals in particular. You know, use social insects. We don't really see them engaging in shame or regret behaviors. Um, other um, non-mammalian social animals, there are a few, don't have that same shame cycle. But social mammals certainly have a lot of shame. Now, when we talk about humans, we want to be uh, aware that there's a distinction between guilt and shame. You feel guilty or have a sense of regret, perhaps over something you've done or did not do. Whereas shame is associated with uh not feeling good about who you are, your identity, um, your personal composition, your personality. And those are distinct concepts. But these are protective mechanisms for social mammals. When we experience shame, we get the sense that there's something about us that others in our community may not approve of or may not like and we, our bodies give us shame to try to motivate us to change our behaviors or presentation in a way that let us fit in with other people. In the same way that guilt is a, a preemptive way of policing our own behaviors. Both of these feelings are highly associated with activity in our anterior cingulate cortex, which is the same place that compassion and empathy uh, kind of originate from in the brain. And I think it's really interesting that shame and guilt, and compassion, and empathy all share a similar neurological neighborhood. And I think that's because they exist in our limbic brain, the part of our brain that's associated not only with feelings and emotion, but specifically in mammals and social mammals, our social capacity, our feelings are designed or, or 
or were shaped by evolution, depending on your kind of epistemological framing, to allow us to survive in the world. And for social animals, fitting in in social structures is vital to survival. And guilt and shame actually help us to do that, even though those are very unpleasant feelings. And frankly, those are feelings that are often used inappropriately by social systems to control other people's behavior. We're aware of the potency of shame, and so shame is often used uh, to motivate people to behave differently for good and for bad. What a fantastic question. Uh, next question came, comes uh, from Instagram from Martumera. <laughs> and that question is, if I could only afford to buy a home in an area being gentrified, should I only rent? What a wonderful question that is wildly difficult. If you aren't familiar, anyone watching or listening right now, to the concept of gentrification, this is what happens uh, when economically distressed and disadvantaged neighborhoods and communities um, start to be, you know, a, a city council would say, economically revitalized. Basically, people with a little bit more money start moving in, buying homes, fixing the homes up, um, trendier or nicer businesses move in. In LA, where I live, that gentrification is a deep cycle where it's a very expensive city to live in. And so kind of the upcoming creative class, uh, younger writers, younger performers, um, younger musicians, younger uh, writers, editors, all these people, they move into different parts of town where real estate is less expensive. And then their friends start up businesses in that area and you see this cycle of gentrification. And gentrification has a racialized component because in the United States, wealth has a racialized component, right? We can, that's really not debatable to any significant degree that white people tend to have the most money in the United States. Asian Americans uh, also tend to do fairly well. And then uh, Hispanic and Latino families uh, have less. And then Native and Black Americans have the least. That's just that's kind of irrefutable data. And so when we talk about gentrification, we can't really separate that cycle from the racialized implications of how we organize our economy. And so when people learn about gentrification and they start to understand that cycle, you know, I can tell you, there. if you go back, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, when I heard of a neighborhood being gentrified, I thought, wow, that's great. We should gentrify all neighborhoods. We should bring in capital and, and improve the infrastructure and make nicer homes. So if it takes you know more affluent white people to gentrify a neighborhood and make the schools better, everybody benefits. That's not what happens. And gentrification, marginalized families, economically disadvantaged families, again, which tends to have a highly racialized component, they get displaced from those communities. They have to move often further away from where they work, for example, and they don't have the money to afford more gas or a vehicle that's reliable or mass transit service doesn't have a route where they have to move now, and it ends up displacing and destroying communities, which is a really heavy idea from a macro level. 
But then when we come in and look at it personally, well, what is our personal responsibility in gentrification? Because if we buy a home or rent in a nice area, our taxes, the taxes we pay, property taxes especially, sales tax also, then continues to create better services in that neighborhood. Meanwhile, disadvantages neighborhoods get more disadvantaged. Unfortunately, there is no simple, this is what you personally should do about gentrification. It's not a problem we can solve through individual behaviors. There needs to be reforms to tax policy. There needs to be reforms, especially in how we allocate and spend tax revenue in the public sphere. Uh, you know, collecting property taxes at a zip code basis or a congressional district basis, and then spending it locally, uh, which is how it ends up happening, um, only reinforces this cycle. So if you rent, it doesn't remove culpability. I guess what I'm saying, and this is a bummer, there is no way to avoid culpability in economic exploitation in the United States. Almost every person reinforces these, these systems that create great disparities in quality of life and access to the economy and access to education and access to healthcare. So in terms of like personally, I would not buy a home and gentrify. But if I rented in a gentrifying neighborhood, that doesn't automatically fix things. So in addition to our personal um, actions about buying versus renting and where we buy versus rent, this is why I talk so much about local politics. The decisions about how schools are funded and mass transit is funded and all the things that actually impact people's lives on a daily basis, these things happen at the local level. School boards, which are local elections, City councils, which are local elections, um, your sheriff in your county, which is a local election, these things have a dramatic impact on these cycles of gentrification, of economic disparity. We need to be involved in our local politics, and we need to speak our values. We need to demand that our elected leaders respond to those values, and if necessary, we might actually need to run for office locally. Gosh, you know what I would love to see? More millennials and more Gen Z Americans running for office and changing the way that things work. In addition to the wonderful advocacy and protest work I see those generations doing. The more women we have in politics, the more people of color we have in politics, the more disabled people we have in politics. Politics is how we as a society decide how resources are allocated. And therefore, we cannot solely ascribe change to our personal behaviors. We also have to reform the structures and systems around our society. So I'd say, absolutely, you're right. Don't buy a home in a gentrified area, either rent there or rent somewhere else. I'm a renter. I'm probably going to rent for the rest of my life. I don't know that I will ever buy a home again because I have concerns about that whole system and what it does to housing access. But get to know who 
your city council people are, who's on the school board, who the sheriff is. Vote for district attorneys and prosecutors and judges and hold those leaders accountable. And we do those things. We start to really make a difference in the impact things like gentrification have on our neighbors. What a great question. Thank you so much. All right, here is another question. This comes from Blake via YouTube. I think this is a question that's come in live while the show has been running. And Blake asks, hi, Mike. I have a question about the mental condition known as mania. Last year, I started exhibiting manic tendencies during month five of quarantine. After my partner expressed concern for my mental health, I got help. Later, I found out that three of my other male friends were also struggling with mania. What is the science behind it? Well, there, um, there's not a single mental health disorder that causes mania. So I would want to start by saying we don't want to oversimplify mania. There are multiple um, psychological and physiological and psycho-slash-physiological disorders that can cause manic patterns of behavior. Um, probably one of the most common types of uh, mania disorders would be bipolar. Certain types of bipolar uh, create um, cycles of mania. And um, it effectively comes down to how your brain produces and absorbs neurotransmitters in cycles. Um, mania f can feel good. It can also feel a little bit like being electrocuted constantly. Excuse me, I've got a little bit of a sore throat, so the water helps. Um, so it can feel a little bit like being like too amped up. Um, kind of neurologically speaking, um, when we take uh, stimulants, stimulant drugs, they can have similar effects on our brain and physiology as mania does when it's occurring naturally within a person. And like many uh, issues involving our feelings and involving our brains, when we look at this kind of neurophysiologically, we have to paint with very broad strokes. But in general, uh, mania tends to involve a little bit less executive function, a little less prefrontal cortex activation. Uh, it tends to involve um, elevated activity in the limbic part of the brain. Um, it can be associated um, with uh, cardiac uh, irregularities and arrhythmias uh, as the body kind of moves into a cycle of of um, perpetual arousal. You know, if we think about the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, the kind of amp up and excite nervous system and the kind of let's chill out and calm down nervous system, uh, the cycles that are happening with neurotransmitters in your brain lead more to that amped up sensation, that higher awareness um, but at the same time with a little bit less executive functional, a little less overseeing part of the brain and a lot more passion and energy. Um, mania is generally treatable. Uh, and I, I want to say this is really important. It's not something we want to self-diagnose. I like that you uh, noticed a set of symptoms and with the support of your partner, then spoke to uh, someone and got a diagnosis and treatment uh, in the medical community. 
a lot of cycles we see in people's lives are the result of self-medicating undiagnosed conditions. A lot of people who have uh, problems with substance abuse or alcoholism or these things that we tend to shame people over as personal moral failings are actually self-medicating cycles of mania. And uh, some people who experience mania also experience periodic crashes as well, which you might have heard as uh, an older term as manic depressive disorder. Um, but since it is neurochemical in origin, we can treat it medically as well. And a lot of people find their quality of life is improved as they do. What a terrific question. Thank you so much. Well, this is the time of the program where we keep the lights on. And we're so thankful to our sponsors of the Cozy Robot Show. Our first sponsor this week is you, the Cozy Robots who make this program possible. It takes a team to make this show, a growing team. Uh, you know, we've got uh, a producer named Victory, uh, an operations person named Tanner. Grace does our social media. Caitlin is involved in keeping everything running. Andrew Galecki's out there. Greg Nordine making sure the podcast sounds great. There are so many people involved in making this work happen, and they all deserve to be Paid. And you all make that possible by becoming Cozy Robots. Uh, when people become Cozy Robots, they get into a community where we take the good stuff of the internet and filter out all the bad stuff. So we have a private Discord server that does not have algorithms exploiting us for moral outrage and profit, where we can discuss things in a more scaled down, relaxed way. We provide support for each other. We've got topical channels where people talk about books and tabletop role-playing games and politics and movies and video games, and they share their creativity. You know, we've got a, photo a photography channel that I look at more than Instagram. I just love the art that people are creating in this community. We also do tons of fun things together. You know, we play games every week after the show in the after party. By the way, friends, we are back tonight, 10 minutes after this program. The after party will begin. We've even had magic shows from uh, people like Taylor Hughes. And uh, last uh, week, week before last, time doesn't mean anything anymore. We had our Cozy Robots Christmas party, which we did twice to handle the global nature of the audience. And it was so much fun. So if you're feeling social distance fatigue, you haven't seen people in a while, know that we have a community that would love to involve you you can go to CozyRobots.com to learn more about how to join. Your support makes this show happen. And if you are not a Cozy Robot yet, joining at literally any level really does help us produce this program. Our second sponsor this week is BetterHelp. You can join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health using the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support. They've got licensed professional counselors who specialize in all areas that we face challenges in, things like relationships and trauma, sleep disorders, anger, family conflicts, gender and sexuality, grief, self-esteem, depression, stress, and anxiety. When you go to BetterHelp.com and fill out a questionnaire, they are going to find the perfect counselor for you. You can talk with that licensed expert via text, chat, phone calls, or video conferences, and I use it every day. Best of all, 
they'll give you 10% off your first month if you visit betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. That's the deal just for the viewers and listeners of this program. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. All right, back to the questions, Ben. We've got a lot coming in, so thank you for that. (laughs) You heard heard the intro where I said, these shows are hard if we don't get enough questions. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Tanner Roberts asks, hey, Mike, I just want to ask how you're holding up. I know things are wild right now, especially with people not socially distancing. We're in La Crescenta, and it's driving us nuts. Hope you're okay. Gosh, Tanner. Uh... (laughs) It's so strange. Um, I feel like I am personally doing better than I've I've done in a long time. Um, I've been trying to work on myself and work on those survival strategies that just weren't working for me anymore. I've done so much therapeutic work. I'm trying to set up more healthy patterns in my relationships with other people. I'm confronting codependency. I'm getting in touch with all of my feelings. I am uh, trying to break out of cycles of, of depression. And I'm trying to support my family and actively participate as we, me and Jenny and Madison and Macy, all learn and unlearn patterns of being together. And despite all the challenges that we're facing as a society, things are pretty good in my home. I mean, we struggle and we're lonely. Don't get me wrong. But we are really learning to relate to each other in new ways. I just have to tell you, if you're going to ask about me, you're also going to hear about my family. I am so proud of my wife, Jenny. She's doing hard work to learn to relate to people in new ways, different ways than like me, that she was raised to relate to others and My children are doing a good job of learning new patterns. We're learning to name our feelings, to communicate openly, to support each other, even as we face significant challenges. And I'm really discouraged. I'm really discouraged in the public sphere. I've tried to cultivate a trust-based relationship of honesty with the public since I accidentally became a public figure many years ago. And I've tried to communicate to everyone just how dangerous this virus is to many people. Most people who get COVID-19 are going to be just fine. And many people are going to be permanently disabled. And some people are going to die. And the people who die... It just has a heavy racialized component. It has a heavy uh, economic class-based component. And I live in La Crescenta like you do, Tanner. And so when I look around and I see packed sidewalks, I see people talking without masks, I see house parties at every house on the street for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. While we are the epicenter of COVID cases in the world, There's really few places worse than Southern California right now. Certainly none our size. You know, the places that have higher per capita case rates are much smaller than Los Angeles County. Uh, It is definitely driving me wild. I experience so much anger all the time, so much disappointment, so much disenfranchisement. Um, I was having a hard time breathing. 
thought it might be anxiety. I didn't know what it was. And uh, reached out to my doctor's office, and they gave me one of these. Turns out I have untreated asthma. Well, it's treated now. Um, and so in addition to the things I already knew about myself medically, y'all, COVID could really kill me. It could just kill me. And I've seen this kind of this dialogue in the world about, well, if you're at risk, you just have to make your choices. You need to isolate. And that's not how it works. It's just not how it works. Because when people defy public health orders and they gather and they get together with other people, even if they're being careful, they spread the virus. And that overloads our healthcare system. Hospitals in LA County are scenes out of a, an apocalypse film right now. I've I've talked to healthcare workers in LA and around the country. And I've heard their frustration, I've heard their tears. So when people say I've got to do what I've got to do for my mental health because I'm lonely or my children are tired of uh being by themselves. What I hear as a disabled person is you think your quality of life is more important than my right to live at all. I hear you saying that your children's ability to gather with their children is more important than the very life of an essential worker or an essential worker's family member. And this has been really hard on me. I think the reason I've been successful in public work is because I am sensitive. And this kind of epidemic of self-centeredness is so frustrating. Because you all know I love science. And I know that if we talk to epidemiologists... And virologists, even these more contagious strains of COVID that are happening right now, they are beatable. How? Compliance with public orders. Now, don't hear me wrong. I understand that people have to work. Gosh, I understand that you have to work. I understand that in the United States, our federal government has had such little response to the economic impact of this virus as to effectively be no response whatsoever. There's a reason people are working all the time because if they don't go to a physical place and perform labor, we as a society have decided they don't get to eat and they don't get to have a place to live. And so out of necessity, people are working. And I understand that. And there's nothing any one of us can do to force the federal government to take a more responsible approach to the virus. So I am empathetic to the fact that there is nothing sustainable about long-term lockdowns. This is the worst way to go about it. Lockdowns really only work if they're absolute and short-term. This kind of twilight zone forever halfway lockdown thing is both pretty ineffective at combating the virus and causes economic calamity. We've combined the worst of two models, doing nothing and responding appropriately. We've taken the, the cons of both approaches and combined them into some kind of national nightmare. 
and. That doesn't excuse individual irresponsibility. Tanner, like you and I are seeing in La Crescenta, California. People's choices are resulting in more people dying every day than died on September 11th. And that horrible, horrible day that the Twin Towers fell that led to a decade of national mourning. We lose more people than that a day. I've heard people say, well, people are going to die anyway. And I don't even have a response to that. It is so callous and cruel. Because the fact is, people are dying at a time they otherwise would not. And that has weighed heavily on me. I'll tell you, I have honestly considered <clears throat> turning off the camera and shutting down the microphone out of the sense of hopelessness that what I say doesn't actually reach people. As I've watched people who follow my work, people I'm friends with personally, and people who I am related to ignore best practices. So, I'm okay personally. And I'm really struggling when I contemplate what we're doing as a society. And I hope anyone watching or listening would consider washing their hands regularly, wearing a mask whenever they're not in their home, and limiting their gatherings with people they do not live with. And understand that if you have to work, that actually makes it more dangerous for you to gather with other people and not less. We have a tendency to think, okay, well, if I can't do everything, I should do nothing. You should do everything you can personally do because you have the opportunity to save lives. Okay, the Gamers Advocate on YouTube asks, are you familiar with the new evidence that was found a few months ago indicating a high likelihood that there's life in the atmosphere above Venus. What does this finding do to the Fermi paradox? <laughs> I laugh with delight. It's such a good question. Let's catch up anybody who is less into space nerdery than you and I. The Fermi paradox is a name for why we look up at the night sky and we don't see like spaceships everywhere. If the universe is massive, and it is, if the universe is infinite, it probably is spatially infinite. And if life can develop in a universe, why don't we see more life? Why don't we see signs of civilization everywhere in the stars? That's the Fermi paradox. Because we have Earth, which doesn't seem like that special as a planet. And it's covered in life. And then every other planet we've ever looked at in our solar system and across anything we can see with the uh, as we look at exoplanets, there's no signs of intelligent life. Um, now, I did see a few, a few episodes ago. I guess it is technically for me a few episodes ago. That's how I <laughs> measure time. A few months ago, I did see that there uh, was a chemical trace, a chemical signature that could be the after effect of metabolism, of cellular life in Venus. We understand Venus, believe it or not, um, is the planet 
in many ways, the most like the Earth in our solar system. It's a very similar mass. So gravity on Venus is very similar to gravity on Earth. Um, it has active plate tectonics. It has a magnetosphere like the Earth does. Um, it just is hot enough to melt lead in Venus's atmosphere because of a runaway greenhouse gas effect. You talk about climate change, Venus can tell you about climate change. You can lead is a liquid on the surface of Venus. But when you get into the upper atmosphere of Venus, which currently has a very dense atmosphere, you get vaguely Earth-like conditions. You get clouds, actually. Um, if you got high enough in Venus's atmosphere, you could survive with an oxygen mask and no spacesuit because the temperature would be roughly appropriate for human life and the atmospheric pressure would be roughly appropriate. So for a long time, astronomers and astrobiologists have, or xenobiologists have thought maybe you could have microbial life living in the atmosphere of Venus. And uh, I wouldn't say that there's a high likelihood that there's life in the atmosphere of Venus, but I would say that uh, there's a higher likelihood than what we saw before that there's life in Venus's atmosphere in the same way that we regularly get signs, chemical signs, that there may be microbial life on Mars. It could be that microbial life is very common. It could also be that life on Earth is from Venus or Mars, that life did not actually, um, a biogenesis never occurred on the Earth. It could have been an uh, asteroid impact on either Venus or Mars knocked some rocks into space that had some endospores on them or something endospore-like. That's an endospore is uh, when a, a singular celled life form goes under extreme environmental stress. It creates a hardened container for its DNA and goes into a semi, uh, semi-suspended state until uh, more pleasant conditions arrive and it resumes activity as a cell again. So you can imagine it's possible that life on Earth was seeded from Venus or Mars. Now, the thing about this is, in both of these cases, on Mars and Venus, we are talking about microbial life on Earth. Microbial life, a bacteria, amoeba, um, maybe a virus. But viruses kind of straddle the line of life and on life. And that doesn't really do anything to the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox doesn't say why is there no life. It says why is there not intelligent life. Microbial life won't create activity on a planet that's observable from very far away. It takes intelligent life to do that. But I really like the question there, and I'd be very excited to learn that there was life on Venus or Mars. Why? It helps us understand with greater specificity what it takes for life to occur on a planet. If three different planets in our solar system have life on them, especially three planets as, with as different atmospheres conditions as the Earth and Venus and Mars, that would tell us that cellular life could be very common in our universe. And then that would lead us to believe perhaps that cellular life becoming complex life and complex life, intelligent life is a relatively rare process, but you got to have cells to start with. So it would be a huge breakthrough to discover alien life, even if it was in our solar system. And even if it was only single celled organisms, because it would help us better understand 
how life forms in the first place, especially if that life was based on a fundamentally dissimilar metabolic process than what we see on the earth? Uh, that's a really terrific question. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay, Louie on YouTube asks, my eight-year-old son has been diagnosed with mild autism spectrum disorder. He doesn't sleep in his own bed. And I take him back to his room, which he shares with his little brother two or three times a night. Any advice you can offer? Yeah, absolutely. Be patient with yourself. Be really patient with yourself. When we have small children, and we have small children who have difficulty sleeping through the night, that takes an an incredible toll on parents and caregivers. Uh, you know, sleep disruption is like banned in the Geneva Convention as an inhumane form of torture. And so I, I can't talk to the ASD stuff and any advice, any of that kind of stuff, until I first say, I, I just want to acknowledge this is really hard on you. So I hope you're patient with yourself. And I hope that if you ever feel overwhelmed, you go, okay, it's okay to feel overwhelmed. This is overwhelming. And I also really appreciate that you are doing your best. You know, when you're taking your son back to his room three times a night, I hear someone doing their best. Um, in general, every child is different and every child with autism is different. But in general, routine is very helpful to folks like me who have autism spectrum disorder. I do better uh, the less variance there is in my daily routine and the less variance there is in my environment. Now this, gosh, you know, my wife, Jenny, she would tell you this is a real challenge. She does not like things the same all the time. She likes to eat different things at different times of the day. Uh, she likes to go to bed at different times of the night, depending on what's on television or what kind of social events could be occurring. And I really just start to break down if I don't go to bed at the same time every night and get up at the same time every morning. I don't like to sleep in on Saturday or Sunday, and I don't like to stay up late on Friday or Saturday night. It is too disruptive for me. Um, so with that in mind, kind of the advice I'd give is just as much as you can ritualize daily routines for your son with autism spectrum disorder, uh, the more likely it is that uh, he will find the capacity to sleep and stay asleep. Um, and this is hard. Um, sleep stuff with kids is hard, and it's hard until suddenly it's it's not. Part of it's developmental, um, and I and we do want to kind of bring that up. Autism spectrum disorder is in many ways a developmental delay. You know, I realize there's things that finally clicked for me behaviorally and in terms of what I'm capable of doing as a person in my 20s and 30s and 40s that clicked for other people when they were 8 or 12 or 19. So I got there. I actually did get there. I just got there a few decades late. <laughs> 
And uh, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me or anything better about someone who didn't have that path. But it means for people who um, know me well and um, are in close social relationships with me, that there, some accommodation had to be made for the relationship to work until I caught up. And some things I just won't catch up on. Some ways I'm just different. It's autism. Um, and so this two to three times a night thing still isn't wildly inappropriate at eight developmentally. And certainly not for a child with autism spectrum disorder. You may find that uh, this is a thing that just takes time. And that's really hard on you. And I hear that. Um, I also might, um, you know... We found great success, number one, with the consistency of taking back to bed. But when that wouldn't work, we would set up like a vaguely comfortable sleeping environment in our room, like a little cot or a pallet of blankets. And when you know, it's okay, okay, you can't go to bed, that's fine. You can sleep right there, kind of low to the floor, not in our bed. So you're close to mom and dad, and that feels safer, but it's much less cozy than your own bed. And uh, that's something I've heard recommend, recommended. Uh, by child development experts as well. I wish you luck. Sleep stuff is very challenging. Okay. Uh, here's a question that came in from Instagram from Savvy R.S. Curdo? Riscurdo? <laughs> reading handles is, is challenging compared to reading names. <laughs> so anyway, the question is, why is it so hard to rewire old worldview mindsets? Gosh, that's a great question um, and a timeless question. And I, I've noticed that, you know, when we grow and we change, we learn new things in life and we do things differently. Um, sometimes it's hard to get our whole self on board. You know, from my own experience, I grew up as an evangelical Christian in a pretty fundamentalist uh, Southern Baptist church. And I had all these specific worldview beliefs about who was a Christian, who wasn't a Christian, what it meant to be a good person, what happened if uh, you were not saved, uh, that you went to hell forever, by the way. That's what happened. Um, and those things were my old worldview. And then I I grew and I changed and I learned new things and my theology changed. And uh, I would still be really afraid sometimes uh, when I... At the, at the time of my life when I was an atheist, sometimes as an atheist, I was afraid I would go to hell. And I would think, this is so silly. God doesn't exist. Neither does hell. I can't go to hell. And yet, part of me would be afraid that I was going to hell. And then later, when I kind of uh, moved into a contemplative Christianity, um, you know, sometimes, I'm despite the fact that I'm contemplative in my theology and in my practice, there's a lot of times that I, I still cling to moral absolutes. If you follow me on social media, you can probably tell I still have quite a penchant for moral absolutes. Um, that part of my worldview is just proving nearly impossible to uproot from my personality and from my psychological composition. So why? Why does this happen? We have to remember something. Brains were hired by bodies to do a job. We look back in the evolutionary history of life on this planet. Bodies came first 
Organisms had bodies before they had brains. Brains are very expensive. They're very expensive to grow. They're very expensive to keep alive. Human brains are remarkably expensive. Tons of calories, tons of oxygen to keep 86 billion neurons running. Why? Why would any organism spend that kind of energy? Brains help us survive. A brain is a survival tool bodies use to survive. Now, in our world, we tend to think of brains as things that solve problems and form identity, right? We can think. We can be aware of the self. That's all an accident as far as the evolution is concerned. That's a happy accident that comes from brains that help organisms survive. And worldviews, we like to think of our worldviews as being something that we assemble rationally and cognitively. But worldviews are primarily socially driven. We see this in research. If you identify yourself as a liberal or a conservative, the information your brain is equipped to process changes. You get a bias. If you call yourself a Christian or an atheist or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Buddhist or I just don't know. I don't know what I think these days. All those things change the information that your brain will process and assimilate because worldviews have primarily a social function that's hard for us modernists to get our head around. So when we change our worldview, we usually also change our social communities. And that's scary because no matter how bad things were in our old community, it didn't kill us. And most life doesn't survive. So anything that doesn't kill you, your brain judges as a tremendous success. So that old worldview that doesn't really serve your needs anymore, there are parts of your brain body system who think that worldview was just peachy because you ate and you had a place to live, and you had some friends. You had some kind of community. So it's really hard for the brain to let those things go. And in times that we feel stress or times that we feel overwhelmed, those are the times we're most likely to lean into older patterns that are rooted deeper in our neuroanatomy, those neural networks, very stubborn. So we go back to old habits and old belief systems. That's why it's so hard to rewire old worldview mindsets is because they helped us to survive. Gosh, what a terrific question. Uh, thank you. Next one's from at KYB8612 on Instagram who said, how do you get going again after depression smacks you down? Hmm. Hmm. Why do you feel like you have to get going? We have such a a productivity-centered culture. And that intensifies mental health challenges. Now don't get don't get me wrong. Sometimes um we don't want to be sedentary. That's bad for our physical and mental health, being sedentary. But rest 
is appropriate during and following depression. Do you know how I rest? So often I did this. I did this this holiday break. I rested by doing personal projects instead of work projects. <laughs> Victory insisted that we as a team, we take a couple weeks off over the holidays. That's why the last two episodes were pre-recorded. And, uh, you know, in those two weeks, I probably rested two days. And the rest of the time, I just worked on personal projects. That's because I've internalized this kind of productivity dynamic. I'm a man. I'm an American man. And so I've been I've been conditioned that the way I have worth is by doing things. And as hard as depression is, it reminds us of the limitations of equating our worth with doing. Because for those of you who have never been depressed, being depressed is not being sad all the time. Being depressed is being numb all the time, almost devoid of feeling. Feeling overwhelmed, if you feel anything. Feeling physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. Depression and suicidality often go together because the drudgery of existence is so overwhelming. It feels like dying would be a relief sometimes. So how do you get going again? I'd start by questioning, what does it mean to get going? Do you mean like having a packed social calendar, getting a lot done at work? Or do you mean moving your body some and investing in relationships and doing what you have the resources to do each day and no more? I lead a group on Wednesday nights called the Overview Program, and we we work through things like this. And in that system, uh, which is based on uh, psychology, cognitive psychology, and emotionally focused therapeutic practices, and behavioral economics, we have five steps to driving some form of change in the human animal. Step one is to notice things. So when you've been depressed and are getting over it, You want to build a discipline of awareness, awareness of how you feel each moment. You want to notice when you feel depressed. You want to notice when you feel like there's some energy there that you could do something, but you aren't. And then after you notice, step two is to name things. When you name things, that means you're learning to verbalize to yourself out loud or in your thoughts what is happening. So in a a depression recovery phase, that might be, I feel tired. Okay, well then rest. I feel a little spark of energy, but I don't want to do anything. Well, okay, notice that. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just saying notice it and name it. After you notice a name, then you can strategize. You can start to come up with a plan for what you're going to do the next time you notice and name a certain pattern. So the next time you feel a spark in your belly, you feel like you want to do something but somehow can't, The strategy there is to dig deeper and say, why? What am I afraid of? What is making me sad or what is making me angry? Those three questions can help us drill down to feelings and patterns that might be blocking us. After we build that strategy, then we can implement. You could create a plan on what to do the next time you feel a spark of energy. It might not be 
appropriate coming out of depression to reorganize your home or write a novel or run a marathon. It might be appropriate to stand up and stretch and then see how you feel. Little achievable goals that give us a sense of momentum. And then the fifth step is to optimize. As you look at the cycle, you pay attention to what's working and what's not working. It can help to write those things down and then go back to the first step of the cycle. I would also uh, encourage you to look at, um, um, well, gosh, my book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. Uh, Another great one is um, Living Like You Mean It by Ron Frederick. Books that can help you uh, understand some of the cycles um, emotionally, behaviorally that can lead to depression. And um, there's certainly clinical depression that is not emotionally centered. It's brain centered. Uh, But when we're dealing with patterns of depression that have to do with repressed emotion, you also can learn different um, tools and strategies for managing um, and I would say processing your feelings. Uh, That's a wonderful question. I'd also like you to know, uh, if you'd like to kind of dig deeper in the overview program, uh, we've got your handle. I'd love for you to join me as my guest. We have another flight of the overview program starting, I think, January 20th. And so if you'd like to join as my guest, uh, I'll pay your way through the program. Uh, So just go to overviewprogram.com and uh, send us your information. And we would love to see you in the program. I'd love to support you as you try to get going again. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful questions here. Thank you. And uh, gosh, look at that. An hour has gone by uh, just like that. So uh, thanks, everybody, for watching tonight and for listening. If you're listening on demand later on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Instagram TV or YouTube, wherever you're watching, you can really help the program by liking and subscribing, maybe leaving a review if that's a platform that allows that. Uh, It makes all the difference as new people find the program, and they are. Gosh, I'm so excited to see our subscribers growing every week on YouTube. Thanks so much for clicking that subscribe button. The Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank the people who make the show possible, like each and every one of the Cozy Robots. Our show is produced by Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galucky. Social media manager, Grace Vaughn. Production support and assistant to Mike, Caitlin Hermstad. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. And I can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.